I've gotten to this place now where again, with that intuitive drinking, I just feel so confident in myself and my decisions. And I think I've also realized, you know, the friends that are peer pressuring me or are questioning me for, you know, not drinking, they're not really my friends, you know, or they're dealing with their own insecurities and they're projecting onto me. Today, we have Allie Bonner on the podcast. Allie is the co-founder and CEO of Oat House, the world's first oat spread. You guys, Allie keeps it so real. She's vulnerable and genuine, and honestly, I could have talked to her for hours. So what did we talk about? Well, we talked about how Allie started Oat House as a way to recover from her eating disorder, her company's rebrand, and the behind the scenes into that decision and what really went into it, what sober curious means to her and how being rigid plays into that, how her activities have changed since rethinking her relationship with alcohol, leaning more into self-care after being someone who had to earn their rest historically, and her thoughts on balancing getting content versus living in the moment. You guys, this is a really, really great episode. There's so much to unpack here. I hope you enjoy it. All right. Welcome, Allie, to the podcast. Thank you for coming on. Yes. Thanks for having me. I just quickly wanted to start and have you enter yourself where you live, your current job and or passion project, and then also what is your current relationship with alcohol? Yes. So hi, everyone. I'm Allie. I guess last name is Bonner. Um, and I am currently a co-founder of Oat House. We make a product called Granola Butter with my partner, Eric, and then his childhood friend, Ari. And I'm living right now in Philadelphia. I'm actually from San Diego. Um, lived in San Francisco for a bit for college and beyond, and then moved to the East Coast just for the business. We have our manufacturing out there. And my relationship to alcohol is intuitive, I would say, is probably the word that comes to mind. It's funny because I'm actually in Santa Barbara right now for a friend's wedding, a college friend. And it was just so funny. Like I, and we can talk more about it later, but basically I felt so much, you know, just like I was transported back into my college self where I drink a ton. And it was really weird because, you know, usually I don't like drinking. I'm pretty like sober curious, I would say. But for whatever reason this weekend, I was like, yeah, this feels right to me. Like I was with all my college friends, you know, I didn't overdo it. Like I just wanted to let loose and have fun. And um, I think it's taken me a while to get to that place because I'm someone who very much sort of like puts myself in a box or like puts labels on things because it helps my brain like just, I don't know, feel organized. And so I've been working really hard to, yeah, just like always be intuitive about it and never feel guilty, you know, about doing one thing or another. And so it's been a journey for sure. Yeah. I mean, that encapsulates kind of my recent relationship with alcohol. And I feel like it's so interesting. Similarly, I like having a label on things. So I know I know what I am or or who I am or what I can do. And it just creates a black and white And the gray area with drinking causes it to be much more difficult to understand like where those boundaries are. But I also think I also historically like had an eating disorder. I do think putting restrictions on things can potentially cause more harm based on based on the situation. And so I do think it is good to lean in and be intuitive when you you are wanting it. And there's so much more that we can go into. And I definitely resonate with a lot that you said there. But first, I just want to start more with like you as a female founder in your business and Oat House. And I am literally obsessed with Oat House. I <laughs> have it with dates every single night. My fiance is obsessed with brownie batter. He like 
literally will go back into the pantry every night and just be like, what is in this? It's so good. <laughs> but I, I honestly just want to get the, like the ins and outs of how you started Oat House. And um, I heard, I've heard a little bit. I've, I mean, I followed you for a while. I've heard your other podcasts, but want to tell this group how you started it and what that kind of business has become. And then I want to get into you as like an influencer on the other side of the business, but somewhat related. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So um, number one, so glad that you and your partner love it. It's always fun to hear. Yeah. It's usually like the boyfriends or the husbands that are, you know, skeptical at first and then they end up housing a whole jar and then, you know, the, the wives or the girlfriends get really mad. So it's, it's not just you. It's a classic story. So I started Oat House about almost five years ago. And um, similar to you, I also struggled with an eating disorder. Mine was, you know, over a decade, multiple eating disorders, orthorexia, sort of an obsession with eating perfectly clean all the time, which really has just sort of come become more mainstream. I think when I was struggling with it in college, you know, no one, that term just wasn't a thing. And ironically, I was also studying nutrition for my undergrad. So that sort of was a nice way for me, a toxically nice way for me to disguise what I was going through. And yeah, just people, you know, just thought I was the healthy one because I was a nutrition student. So really how I describe what I went through with the orthorexia to people is just there's healthy eating in sort of a positive, healthy, balanced way. And then there's people who sort of take it to the extreme. So for me, it was just sort of this like mental prison that I'd created for myself in terms of, you know, I was living in San Francisco. I never felt comfortable going out to eat with my friends. You know, I was really stressed about what was in the food. If I didn't prepare it myself, I sort of, you know, wouldn't eat whole food groups. And so, yeah, it was just like a very toxic place to be. And then also struggled with exercise addiction. So sort of use that as a way to kind of compensate if I did, you know, overindulge or eat, you know, something that I thought was quote unquote bad. So it was really this like restrict binge cycle that I struggled with for a really long time. And where granola butter comes into all this was, you know, I finally had hit this rock bottom and I was just so tired of living in this mental prison, as I mentioned, and um, was really looking for a way out. And so I started to embark on this journey of, you know, self-love and and food freedom and just trying to have a normal relationship with food. I was so jealous of everyone around me, you know, all my friends that could just be so easy breezy with food. And I, I really was just tired of living the life that I had created for myself. So a huge part of my recovery journey was actually adding my fear foods back into my diet. So as I mentioned, I had, you know, restricted whole food groups. And so for me, like peanut butter and almond butter were two things that I was really afraid of for a long time. And so as I started to add those back in, I had a really hard time digesting those. I think just from years of restricting and binging, my gut health was totally a mess. And so my nutritionist at the time recommended, you know, why don't you try sunflower seed butter or soy nut butter? And because I didn't have nut allergies, I had never really had a reason to try those before. And so when I tried them, I was like, these are so bad. Like just, you know, objectively, I'm like, wow, there has to be, you know, something else that people with allergies can eat or just people who are avoiding nuts for whatever reason. And a lot of schools now are nut free. So that was like a whole nother, you know, lots of kids have to eat these nut free spreads. So that was sort of when my brain started, you know, just twirling and, and thinking of different things and I could turn into a butter. So this was 2017 and it was right when Oatly was coming on the scene, you know, with oat milk that was like starting to pop up everywhere. And so that's when I was like, oh, interesting. Like if you could make a milk out of oats, why couldn't you make a spread out of oats? And it was from there that I really just, you know, hundreds and hundreds of 
iterations later in my Vitamix in San Francisco was when I, you know, sort of came up with this idea for granola butter. And then as I mentioned, I have two other co-founders. So Eric, my partner, he was working in consulting. So he's sort of like, you know, business tech operations side of things. And then Ari comes from the culinary space. So he worked at Michelin star restaurants and is a really talented chef. And so he put, you know, sort of the final chef's kiss touches on our recipe and helped us scale everything to what it is today. But yeah, we really started, you know, very traditional startup story. I mean, in my San Francisco kitchen and then moved into my parents' garage in San Diego. And then from there, you know, just slowly sort of worked our way up. But that's sort of the the origin story of our product. I love that. You're really open about the startup life, which I think is like really helpful for a lot of people because I think it sounds super sexy to go in and do a startup and you've crushed it, but it's also been hard. And like you moved to a completely new city and completely new state to expand your operations or from what I've seen, I think that's part of the case. And so I know that influencing to an extent is a is an add-on to your business, right? Like social media is a part of your brand. It's a part of Oathouse, but it's also something that you as yourself are an influencer on other things other than Oathouse. And so I want you to just talk about what influencing means to you. Like how passionate are you about being an influencer versus like building your business? And like, how do those things correlate and or kind of go together. Just want to honestly like mm-hmm. understand or understand your thoughts there. Yeah, no, it's a good question. Yeah, honestly, the influencing is funny because how it is now, how the landscape is now um, with content creation is so different from when I started my account, which was just you know 2016, 2017, like not that long ago. I guess like yeah. five years ago. So when I started uh, in my previous life before Oathouse, I was working in health tech, just marketing role. For a health tech startup, loved it, loved working in tech in San Francisco. It was just the classic, you know, UC Berkeley to tech startup uh, pipeline. I was like a walking cliche, but I really did love it. And so, you know, my on paper, everything was great, like paycheck benefits, et cetera. But there was just this part of me that felt like sort of empty. Like I was just, you know, checking off these boxes, but I wasn't really fulfilled doing what I was doing because at the end of the day, I was, you know, doing marketing for an app you know, and I'm like, what is like, what is that? Like, what am I really helping people? And so I started looking for fulfillment in other ways. And it was right around the time when I was healing my relationship with food. So Instagram really became like a creative outlet for me. And never in my wildest dreams did I think I would be able to support myself full time. I didn't even, to be honest with you, maybe I was naive, but I did not think that I could even monetize Instagram at the time. I was like, maybe I'll get some free Siete chips out of it. You know, yeah. I've seen like some of these bigger influencers who were kind of the OGs, you know, obviously they would do like, you know, get free stuff all the time. And so that sort of, in my mind, that was like a jackpot of, of maybe one day I'll be able to like get some free product and God, just the landscape has changed so, so much since then. I mean, people are really approaching this as a career path, which as they should, it's like actually very lucrative and, and there's still, you know, so much that I think the industry will evolve to become, but yeah, so the beginning was very much just authentically sharing my recovery journey. And, and it was really helpful for me in the beginning too, because it almost, you know, forced me in a way 
to have fun with food. Like I was creating these really like over the top drippy smoothie recipes and it was almost like edible art in a way. And um, I think after so many years of being so rigid with food and so structured about what I ate, it really was healthy for me to kind of push the boundaries the other direction and create, yeah, just these very dramatic food porn type things. And so what it kind of evolved into, you know, as we launched our company was this really great launch pad for our business. And so when we launched, I think I had like 10,000 or so followers. So nothing crazy, but it was a nice little test market to sort of, you know, see if there was product market fit. And so we started, you know, on Instagram, like we launched pre-orders on Instagram and our business was almost, you know, a hundred percent D to C for a really long time until we launched into Whole Foods about a year and a half later. And so that was great because we got so much early feedback. You know, we sent product to influencers, which didn't cost us a lot of money. And so it was really nice in the early days to sort of just like get the word out there. And I think especially for our product, because it's such a new idea, it required a lot of customer education. And so, you know, influencers really helped us do that in the beginning, just because, you know, it's one thing coming from the brand itself of like, this stuff is so good, like you should try it versus coming from other people. It's a lot more substantial. For me, you know, I make most of my income from Instagram. And I choose to do that just because I want to invest a lot of, you know, the salary that I could be making with Oathouse back into the business. I pay myself like 30k a year from Oathouse, like minimal, minimal founder salary. Yeah, very yeah. minimal. Yeah, but this and I'm very honest about money. But you know, through Instagram, I'm making like 100k a year. And I'm, you know, pretty small in terms of, you know, this scale of influencers, I have like 50,000 followers. So for me, it was a way that, you know, and I love sharing my life on social media, but just personally, you know, being an influencer isn't fulfilling to me, just, you know, mentally like stimulating wise. So just growing the business is something that I am super passionate about, but Instagram allows me to obviously support myself, you know, in a way that I don't feel stressed about money. Cause I think that's one problem that a lot of founders have when they're starting their business is, you know, you either raise a bunch of venture money and then, you know, you dilute yourself equity wise, but at least you kind of have that cushion or you're bootstrapped. And then, you know, it's hard to be creative and it's hard to think of new ideas when you're always thinking about money. So it's sort of this push and pull that a lot of founders struggle with. So that was sort of an alternative route (laughs) that I took was, you know, making money through Instagram. But I will say, you know, it's been tough just because I do feel like I'm working two full-time jobs, you know, and anyone who's created content knows like, and trust me, I'm the first to say it's not a hard job because people will say, you know, being an influencer is hard. I I personally disagree. It's actually like the easiest money that I've ever made in my life compared to running a business. And I'm, I'll be very honest about that. But, you know, just doing two things and, and kind of having two full-time jobs is just time consuming. So I'm sort of in this middle zone where, you know, I could pay myself more with Oat House and kind of go that direction. But I don't know, I actually do like sharing my life. And I love, yeah, just being honest on there. And I think what it will sort of turn into is just, you know, me being able to treat it really as a personal diary and less so, you know, with brand partnerships and stuff like that. Yeah, no, that makes that makes a ton of sense. And I feel like it is. It's one of those things where it's cool to get the brand deals. It supports you, which ultimately allows you to pursue your passion. And it's like kind of like your side hustle because your main thing is Oat House, but you're able to get more income from the side thing. And I do think that 
to your point, like I am not an influencer whatsoever, but I have tried to grow a following, but it only really like, I only really feel passionate about building a brand and, and building more than like just what's seen on social media. And so I can definitely resonate with like the thought around just influencing in general. And honestly, it's also, it's also kind of scary to think of like an, an audience only being built on social media um, mm-hmm. because you don't have control over that audience per se or the algorithm and all these things have changed, which I know have hurt a bunch of influencers as well. And then when you said the thing about educating people on the product, Kevin O'Leary is a clear example of needing education on the yeah. product because he tried it and doesn't understand that all drippy spreads are now the thing and it's not just Skippy and Jeff. Yes, um, totally. <laughs> I only like if it's not drippy, I don't want it. Totally. <laughs> so kind of going more into the oat house route, like want to hear what's it like being a woman CEO and would love to hear the other titles of both Eric and Ari and how you guys all kind of co-manage that together. Obviously working with your partner is something that I'm sure has been definitely rewarding, but also very challenging in how you separate church and state effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you guys have been together for a while, but just kind of diving in to all of that. So, yeah, I mean, I think I will say the food industry, and I haven't ever been a CEO in other industries, um, but it, it's pretty welcoming. Like, you know, most consumers of better for you products are women, right? I mean, the majority of our customers, it's like 95% women. And so I will say the industry as a whole, you know, although there isn't a lot of representation at the C-suite level with these companies, they're, you know, definitely they know their customer is women. And so it's a little bit more female friendly, I will say. Although I will, you know, I've had so many instances in invest, you know, potential investor yeah. meetings where I'm like talking about my eating disorder. And I'm just, I remember this, oh my God, we had this, um, it's kind of funny at this point. It wasn't funny at the time, but we were raising our first round of funding. We've only raised a small friends and family round. We're raising again right now, but this was like December, 2020. And, you know, we had never raised before. We were first time founders. And so I somehow got introduced to this like angel group. It was like a syndicate in the Bay Area. And they, you know, it was like a virtual because of COVID. Normally it's in person, but because of COVID, it was over Zoom. And we basically were pitching all of these rich old white men who were, you know, all in different places. So it was like a bunch of little boxes on a screen and I'm like pitching, I'm talking about my eating disorder or whatever. And I'm looking at all these boxes and out of the, like the corner of my eye, I just see this guy yawning, like so blatantly. Oh my gosh. Like, and this other guy's like falling asleep. And I'm not kidding you. I was like, I wanted to cry because I was just like, this is not, they will never. And half of them were bored and half of them, you know, were shifting uncomfortably in their chairs because they just felt, you know, uneasy about me talking about this. So it's just, I've had so many instances like that. But then you know, on the other hand, one of our investors is Tara Bosch, who's the founder of Smart Suites. And she's, you know, young, she's a solo female founder, she's built an incredible business, she also struggled with body image issues. And so I had like a 15 minute phone call with her, you know, barely went over any numbers. And she was like, I'm in. And she was one of our biggest investors for that round. So it's like, sometimes I think certain people just get it, you know, other women, but I will say, you know, my two co founders, Eric and Ari are like, the biggest feminists I know. And they are always looking to me for guidance, supporting me in my decisions. And I think actually the most challenging piece in my experience has been myself, just sort of, you know, imposter syndrome. Um, I think a big 
hurdle that I've had to deal with and I've worked through this in therapy is um, I'll make a decision, you know, in my head, but I'll sort of look to Eric and Ari for confirmation or I will think subconsciously, you know, they have the right answer because they're a man. Right. And so it's like working through that sort of internalized, you know, toxic masculinity, I guess, and realizing, you know, because there's been so many times where then they'll say something and I'm like, I knew that, like, I knew that, but I just, for some reason thought they would have the answer instead. So it's like just trusting my gut and being confident and kind of, you know, building that self-confidence really is the biggest piece. And that just comes with time. And obviously as our company grows, that sort of helps me grow my own confidence. But yeah, I will say like sometimes the biggest, you know, opponent is yourself. And so therapy has helped a lot with that. And then to answer the second part of your question of like our roles. So I'm technically CEO, but I mean, any founder of a startup knows it's like, not glamorous at all, you know, scrubbing toilets, taking out the trash. I do all of that. Um, shipping boxes. So, yeah. I love your behind the scenes of being in the warehouse. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's just real, it's real life. And I, I would feel so disingenuous, you know, sharing anything different, <laughs> but yeah, for me, I, so I manage our marketing team. We have a super lean team in general. We have about 25 employees total. And most of those are production employees because we self-manufacture. So our business team is about, I want to say seven or eight now. And so I manage our marketing team. I do you know, all things social, marketing, branding. Eric and Ari are both operations. And then split onto that, Ari is more R&D and then managing the facility where Eric is sort of finance and then sort of like digital operations, if that makes sense. So at this point, we're pretty split on our roles. Um, in the beginning, we were doing everything. We were crossing over. And then, yeah, to answer your question about working with a partner, that has definitely been, you know, we've grown a lot and, and we've made a lot of mistakes along the way. And I think it's the best it's ever been. I wouldn't recommend it for everyone. I think for us, you know, just objectively, we work really well together and we sort of complement each other skills wise, but it has been a challenge. You know, I mean, it's not easy working together 24 seven, but it's also the most rewarding thing. And I couldn't honestly imagine him just like working a nine to five and me doing this because like I, I, he would just never understand. And so um, I think it almost feels like our baby in a way. And so building something together has been super incredible and, and honestly just, yeah, it's amazing. But I, I love that. I do not think I could do it. I tried to do it for something and I was like, uh, I don't know if even working from home, it's like we kind of get a glimpse into each, each other's work life and it's just an interesting, an interesting situation. But yeah. um, I love that. So before we get into more of kind of like the alcohol side, I did have a question on rebranding because I think it can be something. And so for context, you rebranded to Oat House from I think Queen & Co mm-hmm. when you originally started. And I feel like a rebrand can be something that feels so daunting for people because there's a entire brand and identity associated with a certain product, but longer term, it could be the better solution. So do you mind just elaborating on why the rebrand? How did it go? Mm -hmm. And yeah, just hear a little bit more on it. Yeah. Oh my gosh. The rebrand was hands down the scariest moment (laughs) of my life. Just so much banking on this yeah, such a huge change and also really emotional too. You know, I think I, yeah. I really grieved. This sounds so dramatic and anyone who has, you know, hasn't gone through this is probably rolling their eyes, but I really grieved like the loss of our, you know, of our old brand. And 
And yeah, so I guess backing up. So yeah, we started Queen. And the reason, you know, we rebranded was because when we had our previous brand, it never, you know, it was never part of the plan to do this full time or for this to become, you know, our business, our full time jobs. It was sort of just when Eric and I started, we worked on it nights and weekends for the first year. And so at the time, my Instagram handle was Avo Queen, which had no meaning. It was just like, I like avocados and, you know, I want to eat like a queen. Like there was really no, (laughs) I was just like, this sounds fun. And so that was my handle for many years. And then when it came time to, you know, putting a brand name to this granola butter idea, I was like, oh, okay. I like this vibe of like treating your body like a queen, eat like royalty. Like we were kind of going down that that route. And so, but it again was not something we ever thought was like going to become a full-time thing. So we didn't put a lot of time into it or thought into it really. It was just like, let's see if there's any product market fit here. And then as things started to pick up and Whole Foods brought us in and, you know, one thing led to the next, we were like, oh shoot, like, you know, we, this wasn't really well thought out. And now like our business is growing and we kind of, it's now or never. Right. And so we actually had won this pitch contest. It was like a startup pitch contest. And the prize was a really like super subsidized discounted package with this like top New York city design branding agency. And we were like, this is our sign. Like we've been thinking about it. We've been talking about it. Cause you know, working with agencies are super expensive and like we had gotten quotes for a quarter of a million dollars for a top branding agency. Yeah. I won't name names, but they're (laughs) the top in like the CPG space, which was also an intro from one of our investors. I was like, you want us to spend your money this way? Like, (laughs) Um, and so we were kind of like, you know, a little skittish, And we had just done all of our label design ourselves up until that point, which is very obvious. If you look at our old branding, it was really bad. And so we, you know, figured this was a sign from the gods and we were like, okay, you know, it's time. But what people don't realize is once you're in retail, so when you're in Whole Foods or Sprouts or Target, it is number one, super expensive to change all of, you know, your UPCs, which is your barcodes. And then also it's, you know, really scary because you don't have all of that context like you do on social media or your website to say, Hey, it's us, you know, don't worry with like, nothing has changed. People just all of a sudden one day see a queen jar on the shelf and the next day they see oat house and they're like, okay, I guess that queen company got discontinued or, you know, they don't put it two and two together oftentimes. And then the third thing is it's usually a total shit show, you know, getting the product off the shelves and rolling out and getting the new brand on the shelves. It's not this streamlined process. So like we, there was one point where there was like queen, we were getting, you know, queen jars, they were expired and, and people were buying them like six months after we had like rebranded. I was like, this is such a nightmare. Yeah. All in all, there was definitely many hiccups, but it was hands down the best thing we have ever done for our company. And so what ended up happening was the name Oat House. I mean, we had, that was a whole nother thing was thinking of a new name. Like yeah, oh, I'm going to be I'm on sure. That was a nightmare. Um, like Eric and Ari and I were going crazy. We were in a room and we were just for like hours. We're just like writing down names and whatever. You know, I did like mushrooms one day and I was like trying to just like <laughs> creative and think of names, didn't think of anything. And so finally, you know, I think Ari was the one that thought of Oat House and we were just kind of like riffing. We were, you know, all of us love house music and we were kind of riffing on like, 
you know, the whole vibe of the brand, we knew we wanted it to be so fun, so loud, so colorful. And so we started talking about like house party and like, you know, everyone's welcome in the oat house. And that's sort of where the idea came from. And at that point, we were like, yes, like we're sick of talking about names. Like, let's just go with it. (laughs) We're like, this is good enough. So again, like not glamorous. I don't want people to think, I know some people have this elaborate, like really beautiful backstory. No, we were like, this is great. Let's go with it. And so that's sort of where the name came from. And then we worked with another agency called Wonderkind. They're actually also based in They're Austin. They're in Austin, right? Yeah, okay. I've seen them. So love them. They sort of helped us put the final touches on because something about working with an agency that's also maybe some people may not know is it's really hard. You know, like you have this vision and sometimes it doesn't always come perfectly to fruition. So we sort of felt like the first agency got us like 90% of the way there. But of course, when you're rebranding, like we wanted it to be a hell yes. And it just wasn't there yet. And so Wonderkind was amazing. They helped us like really get to that hell yes, which is our our brand today. And yeah. And so that's kind of how we got there. I love that. Yeah. The, the branding piece of it, like I love your... I don't even know if this is the right word, but like typography and everything about it is truly so on brand, whether it's like the little card you get in the box or even the box that you send things in, which like I'm realizing now those are actually expensive. I mean, you guys are buying in bulk, but like that's a whole thing, right? But it's part of your brand that people know it's like an outhouse box. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the other thing that I I feel like isn't appreciated, but I know you've mentioned before is that when you did the rebrand, like all the Amazon reviews too, right? Like, didn't Mm -hmm. you have to redo all the Amazon reviews and like build up. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. No, but it's like a, it's like a thing that you had to like start from scratch again. Yeah. No, that, yeah. There was like so many little things that I think like after we rebranded, you know, if anyone's rebranding, I have a list that I can help you with because yeah, it's like so many little things you just don't think about. And then, Oh my God, our Instagram handle, like there was a whole fiasco with that because luckily, you know, going to Berkeley, I have a ton of friends that ended up like working at Facebook and Instagram. And so I ended up, you know, going through a connection with one of my friends who helped us out, but like, we couldn't change our Instagram handle for some reason. Like we had oat house, but it just wouldn't let us switch that. It was like a glitch or like a bug with, with the app. And so we were stuck with our old handle for like two weeks after we rebranded. It was so awkward. Yeah. So like little things like that, I would just remember there was so much stress and, but yeah, sorry. Last thing that I like also blacked out was we were, we found out we were going to film shark tank and we had the timing ended up working out, but we didn't think it was going to, but we actually rebranded five days after filming Shark Tank. And so we had to like pull together all of our new branded stuff while we were filming Shark Tank, because otherwise it would have been so awkward if we aired with like our old brand or something. So yeah, it was, it was just a lot of like moving parts, but we're we're here now. So yes, we, we are here. Okay. Let's get into kind of the meat of what, where I want to go with just honestly diving more into alcohol. And you've mentioned a little bit on this podcast, but you're very open about your relationship with food on social media, you've been open about your relationship with alcohol, your relationship with trauma. And I think like, honestly, your your story has resonated with a lot of people, different facets of the story. And so how has your relationship changed over time? It sounds like, I mean, you were talking at the beginning, you know, in college, like most people do, you're drinking a little bit more on the heavier side. And I think that when you're with certain groups of people, you maybe can feel that come back. And as you get older, as you have different experiences, maybe it starts to feel a little bit different, but just walk us through a little bit around how you started with it, where you're now. And we'll kind of talk about this gray area that we mentioned earlier. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm so excited to talk about this because it really is something that, I mean, since, you know, probably 2016 is when I went on Accutane for my skin. That was like Mm. the first time that I started just reassessing my relationship with alcohol. So I guess, yeah, so backpedaling a little bit in college, I was in a secret drinking society, which sounds so lame. But at the time I felt so cool in college. And it was basically, I just, it was like, I got hazed, you know, every football home game day. And it was, yeah, it was just this really toxic experience that, you know, at the time I felt cool. People were like, wow, it's so cool that you're part of this. And looking back, it was like, you know, if you didn't make yourself throw up, you would be hospitalized because of how much you had to drink. And so, yeah, just crazy. And, you know, girls went to the hospital all the time. It was like this pretty normal thing. And so that I think really just shifted my relationship with drinking because, you know, freshman year, I had a long term, like a long distance high school boyfriend. And so I was like drinking a little bit, but I was sort of just like, you know, missing him. And I wasn't like, I didn't have the typical freshman experience where I was like trying to hook up with everyone and like crazy. (laughs) I know a lot of people like go crazy their freshman year. And that was sort of, I was sort of like tame, but then we broke up and then sophomore year is when I like unleashed the Kraken, you know, was in this drinking society. And it was like sophomore to senior year. I was honestly like a functioning alcoholic. And I just remember, you know, I mean, like a lot of people in college, like normalizing blacking out and, you know, hooking up with people that I wouldn't have done sober or even, you know, remembering that. So there was a lot there. And then I graduated, you know, moved into San Francisco, was working in tech and I felt this pressure again, but from the workplace. So it was like, you know, that my company was super young and, you know, lots of People from other cities had moved to SF. So a lot of people were friends and they were hanging out outside of work. And we actually had a, a bar on the rooftop of our office. And so we would so always- So SF. Go, so SF. We would always go up, you know, happy hours. And I remember having, you know, moments where I was sort of getting into, you know, my health and wellness journey. And I was like, I don't, you know, it's Monday. Like, I don't really want to take a shot of fireball. (laughs) You know, it's like 5 p.m. on a Monday. And just feeling that like, why? Like, what's wrong? You know, what's wrong with you? Kind of vibe of like, why wouldn't you? Like, or, you know, you're no fun, you're boring, you're lame. And I didn't have the self-confidence and I didn't have the boundary setting, you know, tools to just say, you know, I'm going to do me. I don't like, I don't care what you have to say. And I, I was kind of a people pleaser at that time. And so a lot of my drinking, you know, during those years was, yeah, just out of like peer pressure really. But going back to what I was saying in the beginning, like that was really, I think the beginning of when I started to just reevaluate my relationship with alcohol. And then thank goodness I went on Accutane for my skin. And that really was almost like this excuse for me to say, you know, Hey, I'm on this really intense drug, but deep down, I just really didn't want to drink. And I wish I was able to just say like, no, I'm good. You know, but I kind of needed that at the time, um, to be my crutch. And so then I got off Accutane and I really just started experimenting and playing with, you know, being sober curious. Um, I got really good at fake drinking. So I would like go to events and, you know, I would like hold the same drink all night again, like still not having that confidence to just say like, Oh, I'm good, you know, or I don't really, I don't feel like drinking tonight. And I just feel like through therapy and, you know, self-confidence and maturity, I've gotten to this place now where again, with that intuitive drinking, I just feel so confident in myself and my decisions. And I think I've also realized, you know, the friends that 
are peer pressuring me or are questioning me for, you know, not drinking, they're not really my friends, you know, or they're dealing with their own insecurities and they're projecting onto me. So it's, I think therapy has really helped a lot with that. And so now, you know, I have a, a mocktail cart at home. Like I love, you know, I love the, the, non-alcoholic, sober, curious lifestyle. But I also know myself. And like you said, with the restrictive piece, I I can feel myself, you know, it's very easy for me to slip back into like that rigidity. And so sometimes I actually, you know, I like when I do, you know, let loose and kind of drink at times because I'm like, Al, you needed that. Like you're just, I, I kind of revert to like being a rigid person with work and all these things. And so Sometimes I think I need that um, to just like loosey goosey, but yeah, it's, it's really changed my life in, in so many ways. Just being able to, yeah, just hold a boundary and communicate my needs to other people without fear of like judgment or, or shame or anything like that. Yeah. And I love your mocktail cart. It is Thank so, you. it is so bomb. And we'll, we'll talk about what your favorites are. Cause I know you've been experimenting, but I think what's, what's interesting about, you know, you talking about going through your sober curious journey. And I think even in that in and of itself is like a label to an extent. Yeah. And just to give kind of like a background, a quick background on me and how I think about that word is that it's become very buzzy as you probably are seeing like people who are sober curious. And I think it's great, but I think it's more of a, what's the right word, a transitory period for people in the sense that being sober curious means that you're interested in experimenting with with what life could be like without centering it around drinking because so much of our life right now, if you take a step back, is centered around alcohol. And so what does life look like if you are not you know, drinking as much. And I think based on going through that journey, whether how, whether it's a month or six months or two years or five years, whatever it is, people can then make the decision of like, yeah, maybe I do want to be a more more mindful drinker. Maybe I do want to be more intuitive and it allows them to make that decision. And I think for me, I went through that sober curious phase of like, okay, what is, what is life going to be without drinking all the time, without revolving everything I do around drinking? And now I feel like I've gotten to, into a place that's very similar to you around being intuitive, being more intuitive with it, being a quote, mindful drinker. But there has been a gray area for me. And I don't know if people ask you this, but I, I think some people are confused when I drink mm-hmm. and they're confused when I decide to drink and when I don't decide to drink. And that's been a bit difficult for me. I think the social aspect of it, I've gotten very confident where I'm just saying, oh, I'm not drinking. I don't need any excuse. I'm just not drinking. Or if people ask me, I say, oh, I'm zero proof forward. I don't drink a lot, but I, you know, I do drink. But I, I do think it is this confusing area around people wondering when I'm going to or when I'm not. Like I'm getting married and people are saying, oh, are you going to drink at your bachelorette? Are you going to drink at your wedding? And so there can be these more questions. So like interested to just honestly hear your thoughts there. And then also on if you feel like now having your mocktail cart at home, it makes it really easy to, to not drink alcohol at home. Like I have all of these options. I can make a mocktail. I can have non-alcoholic beer. But when I go out, and people are at a brewery all day and all there is is a sparkling water, like that feels harder for me. And it's it's still something I'm going through. So kind of just threw a lot out there, but mm-hmm. wanted to hear any of your thoughts. Yes. Oh my gosh. Well, first of all, I feel so much of what you were saying. I think one piece of putting a label on something, right? Of like, you know, even saying like, oh, I'm sober curious is it's sort of 
I think at least for me or saying, you know, oh, I don't drink or, you know, oh, I do drink, like putting myself in any box, I think it just sort of helps to, with me, helps answer other people's questions about where I stand. And it sort of just diffuses any awkwardness, like you said, that happens in the gray area. But I found myself, you know, wanting to put a label on things to make other people more comfortable. And I don't like that because it's almost, you know, it's not my job to make you comfortable. And so I think it's totally valid. I I totally understand, you know, why people are asking you, Oh, are you going to drink your bachelorette or your wedding? Because they're trying to, in their mind, you know, figure out what the situation is going to be like. But for you, I mean, you know, if you're intuitive about it or mindful about it or whatever, again, not to put like a label on that, but if it comes down to it and you, you know, feel like drinking or not drinking, like it's just your decision. And I think the reason that I have trouble with, you know, the alcohol industry and just our drinking culture and society in general is because other people, you know, they act like your business is their business, if that makes sense. So it's like, I was at this wedding, you know, with my friends and I actually did have, you know, now that you were talking, you reminded me, I had a few people, you know, be like, Oh, I thought you didn't drink. And I was like, you know, in my mind, I'm like, well, what is it to you? (laughs) I didn't say that, but I'm like, why does it matter? But also I was like, Oh no, I just, you know, whenever I'm feeling like drinking, I kind of, you know, I just do whatever I'm feeling. And it was almost like that wasn't the answer that they wanted. Like that, that wasn't, I don't know. I, that didn't satisfy them. If that makes sense. Like I think people we love, maybe it's like human nature, but our brains, I think work really well in this black or white type thinking. And so, yeah, people really struggle in the gray. And I think it is, it is super common, but I mean, for me, it's been totally a journey too. Like you said, like, you know, when I'm home and I have my mocktail cart and friends come over and they're like, Oh, this is actually really good. You know? And I'm sort of excited showing them all these different options. But when I'm out, like you said, you know, wine tasting, it's like, the whole yeah. activity is wine tasting. Like Eric and I are planning, we don't want to do like a traditional type wedding, but we're thinking of doing, you know, just like a small, you know, immediate family ceremony thing in like a Airbnb in wine country by Santa Barbara. Long story short, we're like planning, you know, different activities we would do. And, and both of our parents are like huge wine tasters. And we're like, oh, well we could go wine tasting. And I'm like, but I don't really like wine tasting. Yeah. <laughs> there's nothing about it. It like gives me a headache. Like there's nothing. I mean, I want to spend time with them, but yeah, I think there's these different, different activities. You're right. That like, I don't have the answer to, and I, I haven't figured out how to, you know, act in those situations. And so those are the times where I think, at least for me, sometimes it's just easier to, you know, like, I don't want to answer the questions about, you know, whether you're drinking or not drinking. So that's when sometimes, and maybe this is, I don't know if this is the right way to do things, but I just hold a glass of wine or like, you know, I'll get one glass because I'm like, I'm just tired and I don't want to deal with you guys. But I think eventually I hope to get to a place where, you know, there are like non-alcoholic wine options at a winery or, you know, more I think happening sort of in the world. And actually I really don't resonate with like the city of Philly in general. We've lived there for two years now and there's so many beautiful elements to living in Philly. And I think it's a really underrated city, but just the whole city revolves around drinking and revolves around 
you know, football and, and eating. And I'm like, I don't, I don't, I don't like any of these things. You know, I really miss like at least being in California or, you know, in Austin, I'm sure it's the same way. Like there's so many outdoorsy activities that don't involve drinking. And I've found just living in a city like Philly, where especially when it starts getting colder, I'm like, Oh shoot. Like what, you know, it's been hard for me to make friends because all people do is like go to the bars and, and drink a lot. And I've noticed that. So yeah, I think it's, you know, it's hard and I don't really have the answer, but, um, just talking through, you know, some of my thoughts and I totally resonate with, you know, what you were saying too. And I think hopefully the non, you know, alcoholic sober curious trend will start to sort of infiltrate, you know, some of these activities that revolve around alcohol. Yeah. I completely resonate with the things to do because, I am originally from Chicago, suburbs of Chicago, and it gets cold there. And in the winter, there's not that much to do, but go and eat and drink. But after school, I was in New York for three years. And then I was in San Francisco for three years. And then I moved to Austin earlier this year. And I honestly think like being in New York, I don't know if I could have done it. One, I mean, I was also at a different point in my life where it was right after school and was going out all the time. It was like first job and I had a different relationship with alcohol, but I, but being in San Francisco when I first started this, like my fiance and I honestly loved the aspect of being outdoors year round and the things that we were able to do and the things that didn't necessarily revolve around drinking. And I think when you do take a step back and look at what you're doing socially and you see how many things revolve around alcohol, it is pretty eye-opening. And you may just change some of your activities if you're able to. So like at Austin, when we moved here and our our jobs are remote, and so we were able to pick literally any city to go to. Um, and everyone's like, oh, California to Austin, Texas. <laughs> yes, we were one of those, but yes. um, I don't come for me, please. But one of the key kind of factors was being able to do things year round and being able to do things like I'm a huge restaurant person, but I wanted to not only have to go to a bar on a Saturday to Sunday to watch college football or NFL. And that was the only thing I was going to do from late October to February. Right. And I think that's exactly what you're, you're getting at with Philly. And like you grew up in California and you see all these things that you're able to do, like go to the beach and go for different walks and hikes. And I do think that is like a really big factor in different activities that can like also be really great for your mental health too. And I know you've been a very big kind of transition. I know you've been a very big advocate for mental health and you talked at the beginning about self-care and how you've been leaning much more into self-care. And I've like even noticed that in your content more recently over probably like the past year or so, but like, what are you currently doing to take care of yourself? Mm, Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's something that I really struggle with. Like I remember even, you know, when I was like 10, just laying on the couch watching cartoons. And then my parents, you know, hearing they were out on a bike ride or something and hearing the garage door open and they were coming home. And I like leapt off the couch and I started just like making myself look busy. Like, I I don't know what it is. Maybe it's some childhood trauma or something, but like, there's something inside me where I feel like I have to earn my rest. And I, you know, I can't just like lay on the couch and watch TV all day. Like something about that just feels like, not okay in my brain. And so again, therapy has helped me a lot with this, but you know, that obviously leads to inevitable burnout if you're just working, you know, like a ham on a hamster wheel 24 seven. And so I really, I'm, you know, it's really cool to hear you say that you've noticed that because I really have, you know, made 
you know, made it a focus and a priority to take care of myself and just, you know, just rest and, and rest, you know, is so productive. And I think it's something that we just demonize in our society. And we're always talking about the hustle and the grind, but it's like, you need both, you know? And so, you know, yeah, recently went to Spain with a girlfriend just for a week and, and just, you know, I felt so, so guilty leading up to it. And, you know, just all of those like old, you know, conversations coming in about, Oh, you know, you shouldn't go. It's a busy time, whatever, like all this chatter. And I was just like, I hear you. I hear you chatter, but I need this. And it was so incredible, you know, just how rejuvenated I felt coming back. And now I'm like, I'm excited. I'm excited to work again, you know? And I think it also was very eye-opening being over in Europe and just talking to people there in Spain. Oh my gosh. Oh my God. And so different. So different. And like our taxi driver, he's like, yeah, I'm about to head out on, you know, a three month vacation. And I'm like, what? And he was like, yeah, you Americans work too much. And I was like, I know we do. And so, yeah, there's just so much that I think we can learn from, you know, from Europeans in general, not to categorize a whole, you know, I know there's a lot of countries within Europe, but I just feel like their vibe over there, they just do it right. So yeah, I think things that I do to take care of myself, especially, you know, running a business or, you know, not even if you don't have your own business, like we're all so busy. And and I think life has only gotten more connected. Like, you know, never before have we just had this little phone on us at all times where people can reach us 24 seven and, you know, our work emails are buzzing and, you know, Twitter and like, we're basically learning about the world's events at all times. Like it's just too much for our little brains to handle. And so I think that's why, you know, there's a lot of anxiety and depression and all these feelings because we're just too connected. So what I love to do is something that I've been doing a lot lately is, and I know depending on where you live, maybe it's not safe that you can do this, but like I leave my phone at home and I go for a walk and I'll do no music, no podcast, like just solitude walk. And if it's, yeah, if it's not safe where you live, obviously, you know, it depends, but it's been so good because I think I'm sort of, and I think a lot of us are in this mindset of like, if we're folding laundry, we have to be listening to a podcast. If we're oh in the God, car, yes. you know, it's like that constant. And I know it's ironic because we're recording podcasts right now, but um, it's just, I feel this need sometimes to always be learning and growing and self-improving. I just don't do things a lot of times anymore for fun or, you know, for enjoyment or just for the hell of it. And so I think, you know, when you're a little kid, you do a lot of that, like just playing and doing things just to do them. So disconnecting is super important first and foremost. I'm not really a meditator. I've tried like time and time again, and it's just really difficult for me, which probably means I need it. I love moving meditation. So like that to me is meditative. And then also finding, speaking of movement, finding movement that actually feels good in my body and that I enjoy because for so many years I did the Barry's boot camp. I did the hit. I did the, you know, whatever was going to burn the most amount of calories and it stressed me out and I didn't enjoy it and I dreaded it. So now I do things like, you know, walking to me, like that's a great form of movement that I enjoy and it calms me down. Pilates, low impact stuff. So those two things. And then I actually schedule once a month, I get a massage. I know that is such a luxury, but it's something that, you know, I really budget for because I love it. Like touch is one of my top love languages and um, just, it's another like disconnecting, you know, I'm not looking at my phone. Like I kind of disintegrate into the void. 
And then lastly, I'm a really big proponent of psychedelics. I've talked about, you know, that on my page a lot more recently. And I actually think that's a really incredible form of self-care, not like tripping out and doing psychedelics willy-nilly, but for me, I've done it in a therapeutic setting. And so whether it be psychedelics in that way or just therapy in general, I think taking care of your own, you know, mental well-being is an incredible form of self-care. So I actually see one of my therapists is a somatic therapist, which is like body-based therapy. And I've lived my whole life neck up, just like very cerebral, very, you know, heady, always overthinking everything. And I've been very disconnected from my body for so many years. And so it's really kind of taught me to just tap back in and, and feel my feelings and get comfortable with that. So I found that to be really helpful with, you know, overall wellness and self-care. But yeah, those are just a few things. I'm sure there's more. That's so interesting because I feel like from what I can see, you feel really in tune with your body now. And you've talked a lot about of like letting Mm -hmm. go of being hard on yourself related to exercise in particular and like resting if something hurts or if it doesn't feel good or maybe you just haven't had time. And I think like a lot of the things that you're doing are things that people haven't really done. Like the psychedelics thing is new. Honestly, just getting more in touch with who you are as a person, like tapping more into that mental space. How can you like flush some of the things out? How can you disconnect? And like, I, I so struggle with this. I mean, you just, you hit on it so hard. It's like, I feel like I always need to be doing something like my partner can sit on the couch on Sunday and watch NFL and enjoy himself. And he can work really hard during the week, but like he has his wind down time. He relaxes. He has such joy and like relaxing. And here I am Saturday morning, 8 a.m. making mock, making 10 mocktails, yeah. filming, filming content, like posting, editing, right? like listening to a podcast while I'm also filming because I need to be listening something to self-improve. Like you, it's, it's literally me. Yeah. And I really struggle with just taking that break. But I, I do think similarly, like I, I did go to Europe and I had a couple of weeks where I was able to disconnect and like my corporate job, I, I came back rejuvenated. I came back more re- rejuvenated on content, but even still, and like, I would be interested just to hear quickly on how you feel about the content side of things mm. when you're still, you know, taking that break. Cause like when I'm on a trip, or even, like if I'm doing anything and I don't get content, I'm like, oh, I was so present. I didn't get any, I didn't get any pictures. I didn't get any videos. Mm-hmm. I was so present in that moment. And that's like so joyful for me. But then I realized I could have missed out on a really great content opportunity. I know it's so murky and it feels a little messed up to say that because it's like, what life am I living to not be present in? But any like quick thoughts there? Oh, oh my God. Yes. Eric and I li- literally had this conversation yesterday. <laughs> Because I think, yes, it's so hard, so hard. And so I feel like I have a lot of thoughts on it. But first, I think so many people struggle with that who have created this, this career out of content creation. And I think when people do say, you know, being an influencer is hard. I think that piece to me is, is actually quite valid of you know, your whole, you can't really disconnect. You're, you're always thinking of things through the lens of, Ooh, that would be good content. Or, you know, let me do this for a video, you know? And although that sounds like not that big of a deal to someone, you know, who doesn't do it for a living, like it's really exhausting. And it's, it's just, it takes you out of living and it takes you out of the present. And when I was in Spain, you know, with my girlfriend, Oh my God, I had that 
every day. It's like, you know, I'm surrounded by these beautiful beaches and landscapes. And my mind is like, you know, firing of like, oh, I could get this content and this content. And I had, it was like this angel devil on my shoulder of like, I had to remind myself, Allie, no, you know, like this is your vacation. But of course, you know, then I'm like, well, this is the best content that I'll ever get. Like, what am I going to get, you know, in stinky Philly? (laughs) It's like this island off of Spain. So number one, I do not have the answer. It's something I struggle with in immensely. And I think it's something that a lot of people struggle with. And so, you know, it really has to come down to boundaries again, which it's hard. And I think content creation, another tough thing about it is, you know, in other jobs and in other industries, you're not really putting your work out on display for everyone to see and all the numbers and analytics, you know, of what you do. And I think that's actually really stressful too, of like, you know, everyone can see how many followers you have, how many likes you got on a post and whether or not you tell yourself or you tell other people like, oh, it doesn't matter. It does matter. You know, it's how people make money. And so that's something that I think I'm just very competitive naturally and competitive with myself, competitive with other people. And so I found that to be really challenging because, you know, when I started my account, like I mentioned, it was a creative outlet. It was, it was a place where I could just express myself. And then the second I started making money off of it, I turned it into a job. And I, you know, I started to think of it in terms of numbers and growth and all of this stuff. And it just sucked the joy right out of it. And so I think that's why maybe doing that full-time for me probably wouldn't be the best idea just because I would, I don't know, get like too focused on the numbers. Yeah, it is hard. And I think really the only thing I can I can say that I'm working on is again, just like setting boundaries, but you know, and telling myself, say you're going on vacation. Okay. Like maybe I'll work a little extra leading up to this vacation to make sure I have content ready, or I'm just going to be okay with not posting. And that's cool too. You know, cause I think that's another thing is like, we live in this first, it was photos, right. Which are so much easier than video. And now it's like, they've made our lives even harder Instagram by being like, now everything you do has to be video. I wasn't a video editor. Like now I have to learn how to edit video and like crank out a video every day. That's so much work. So I think like being easy on yourself too. And you know, I don't, and now there's TikTok. there's a whole other platform. Like it's just never ending. And I think like at the end of the day, you know, everyone is just competing for attention and like, it's just the world that we live in and you have to either play the game, you know, or, and you have to, or the game plays you. And I think you have to be really cognizant of your mental health because it's easy to get sucked in. And I think some of us need to go touch some grass sometimes and like get off of our, our phones. But yeah, it's hard when money's involved. And if it's like your, how you support yourself. Yeah, no, I, I think that's so valid. And that's why I like that you keep it real. You be real, if you will, because when I, to your point, like when I'm feel like I'm required to make a video every day. I look at everyone else and I'm like, seems like they think it's super easy or something. It's not. And it, to your point, like taking a couple of photos, editing those and posting those is so much different than the content that's required by consumers now Mm -hmm. that we have to pump out. And you want to put out creative content, but people also say you have to post every single day. And so it's like quantity over quality. You never really know. It's hard. Okay, let's do some rapid fire to end. So I am in my, what I would call hosting era, and I love talking to people about hosting. And I think 
changing the game around hosting with alcohol not being at the center is what I'm trying to do. And so if you had to describe your hosting style in one word, what would it be? Mm, Let's see. I would say chaotic. (laughs) (laughs) That feels on brand. Yeah. I'm just, I feel like it's so easy for everyone else. Like they just are very easy. No, it's hard. You know, oh, I just have this cheese plate assembled. And I'm like, people come over and I'm like, oh, oh, I don't know if I have anything for you. Uh, Let's just whip together some Ritz crackers. Yeah, it's very chaotic. It it stresses me out. What is your favorite drink, alcoholic or non-alcoholic or both? Oh, Lord. Alcoholic, I love an espresso martini which I actually want to remake because I feel like it'd be very easy to make a mocktail with that. It's very easy. I can share a recipe. Okay, perfect. That one, love, um, because I'm just a sleepy gal. So I just, if I'm going to go out, I need some help. Caffeine um, to get you going. Yeah, to get me going. And let's see, mocktail. Oh, I've been loving like hibiscus drink, ruby, mm. like anything that's fruity but not too sweet, I think yes. is my best. That's like my go-to at a at a restaurant or bar. It's like refreshing, not too sweet, but like fruit forward. Yes, love it. What is your favorite type of get together? Like, do you like going to friends' houses, game night? Like, what what's your vibe? I love like a bachelor night with my girlfriends. Just, I'm not even really a fan of the bachelor, but just like I love that vibe of like you know, I don't know, like yeah. just hanging around and. Just bad TV. Yeah, trashy TV. Yeah, I love that vibe. So probably like a chill friend's house sleepover energy. I love that. And last one, do you prefer to host or be hosted? It sounds like be hosted. Be hosted, yeah. Okay. You know, I aspire to be that host that just loves to host. But until then, I will come to your house. (laughs) I love that. Allie, thank you for coming on. Tell us where we can find you, how we can support you best. Give us your personal oat house, all the all the things. Yes. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you for having me and thank you everyone for listening. Yeah, you can find me. So Instagram, my personal Instagram is just my name, Allie Bonner. And then oat house is just oat.house. It's H-A-U-S. And you can find us at Whole Foods or Sprouts and a national retailer in May, which I'm super excited to share. Amazing. Yeah, thanks. Thank you so much. Thank you. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Thank you so much to everyone for listening. As you know, I am not a specialist and I'm not trying to give advice whatsoever. These are just my own personal thoughts and conversations. If you haven't already, please subscribe and rate and review the show if you can. It helps so, so much for those starting out. And feel free to find me on social channels, Host by Tori, and my website, www.hostbytori.com, where you can find everything about what I do and what I offer. Thank you. Thank you.